Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Johann Baptiste Kramer. So today's episode is a little bit different from our normal format. As you may have noticed, we have new music for the podcast intro and outro, which is very exciting. Our new music, which is Johann Baptiste Kramer's Etude Number no. 21, was performed for us by Dr. Carolee Hunter. We are actually going to be chatting with her a bit at the end of this episode, so please stay tuned for that. So before we speak with Dr. Hunter... We are going to do our usual deep dive into the subject, which, as we said, is Kramer. And this is a reference pulled from Emma and part of why we selected a piece by Kramer for our new intro and outro, because there is a direct connection to one of Austin's novels, which is very fun. Yes, we love that connection. The scene in question is the same scene from our episode on Irish melodies. We are in the Bates' household after Miss Bates and Mrs. Weston come and fetch Emma and Harriet for a visit. When they walk into the sitting room, Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill have been together for a bit with the elderly Mrs. Bates as chaperone. One gets the sense that she's not really been paying much attention to what they've been getting up to. (laughs) Dozing off as a chaperone, more likely. There is talk of Jane's new piano, sent by a mysterious benefactor. And Frank starts looking at the music that has been sent along with the piano and says the following to Emma. He took some music from a chair near the pianoforte and turning to Emma said, Here is something quite new to me. Do you know it? Kramer. And here are a new set of Irish melodies. That, from such a quarter, one might expect. This was all sent with the instrument. Very thoughtful of Colonel Campbell, was not it? He knew Miss Fairfax could have no music here. So again, in a previous episode, we read this exact same passage, unpacking the reference to Irish melodies. And there is a lot to unpack A lot to say there. there. There's a lot to say. (laughs) But today, we're looking at the reference to Kramer in Frank's Secret Gift. That's a spoiler alert for you. Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler. The piano and the music, they're both from Frank. So Frank is referring to music from the composer Johann Baptist Kramer. Kramer was born in Germany in 1771 into a very musical family. His father, Wilhelm Kramer, was an immensely famous violinist who moved his family from Germany to London when Johann was about three years old. According to Gerald Grau's biography of Kramer for Oxford Music Online, Wilhelm taught his son violin when he was quite young, but Johann showed a strong affinity for piano. So when he was seven, he started lessons with some of the biggest names of the day, including Museo Clementi. Kramer made his formal performance debut on April 6, 1781, as part of one of his father's annual benefit concerts. He was 10, just in case you're like me and need help with that kind of math in context. (laughs) 
I need help with that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) A decade after that, in 1791, Kramer began performing as an active career and really made some waves. Throughout his career, he ended up rubbing elbows with some of the biggest musical names in Europe. Haydn, Mendelssohn, Liszt, Czerny, and Beethoven, just to name a few. Kramer and Beethoven were actually fairly close colleagues, performing and championing each other's works throughout their careers. For instance, according to Grau, quote, Kramer helped to introduce Beethoven's sonatas to English audiences through his performances. Grau goes on to point out that Kramer, as a performer, was very compelling and moving. In fact, he gained the sobriquet of Glorious John, an anglicization of Johann. I love that. Glorious John. Glorious John. So if he played at a concert, whether in a private gathering or a larger venue, people were flocking to hear him play. And whatever he performed, the music subsequently became quite popular. And I I love this, the fact that he's out there like a musical influencer in the early 1800s. And, you know, the fact he's the fact that he's hyping Beethoven, introducing his sonatas. It's like it's almost like he's out there going like, hey, have you heard this bop from my friend Beethoven? Sonata number 14, friends. It's going to be huge. (laughs) And then everybody passes out as he performs the Moonlight Sonata. I mean, hearing glorious John playing Moonlight Sonata, can you think of anything more Sunni? Like, he would be huge on TikTok right now. Yes, he would. He would. Everybody would be like, what's his next take? Mm-hmm. What's, what's he going to play next? Beethoven was likewise out there telling everyone about Kramer's compositions. And Kramer's most enduring works, the ones that really marked history in this moment, were his collections of etudes. According to Jeremy Nicholas, in his article, Studying the Etude, quote, a landmark moment came in September 1804 when Kramer brought out a book of 42 etudes, the first of their kind ever produced. Different from earlier volumes labeled lessons or exercises, these studies were based on a particular pattern of notes that was then reiterated in various forms. The aim, of course, was to develop the pianist's dexterity coordination, and stamina. So, as it mentions, Kramer wasn't the first person to compose an etude or a study for piano students, but his real innovation was to publish them as a collection and to create technical pieces that were also actually pleasant to listen to. And his etudes were a commercial success and considered the gold standard of etudes for decades. According to Grau, quote, This collection has long been considered a cornerstone of pianistic technique. And while others immediately started to publish their own studies, trying to imitate his success, Grau continues, Kramer's studio, the name of the work, was the most widely used and admired collection in the early 19th century. And this is where Beethoven really hypes Kramer. He loves the etudes, going so far as to annotate 21 of them for his nephew to use as part of his musical education. And according to J.S. Shedlock, who published these annotations in an edition in 1892, Beethoven considered them, quote, the best preparation for his own works, which I really love that as a compliment. It's like, these etudes are so good. 
if you practice them, you will be able to even play my, my amazing stuff. pieces. It's kind of a cool little compliment, though, to be like, my my friend has these great etudes and you need to be able to master those before you can do something that's more virtuosic. Oh, I love it. It's just it's completely charming. Oh, it's so delightful. Yeah. And these annotations are delightfully detailed, giving additional prompts about technique, fingering, tracing melody for specific etudes. Um, and so, for example, for the Etude 21, the study that we chose for our intro and outro music, Beethoven wrote this. Attention must be paid to the accent of the fifth note of each group, which mostly appears as a minor second. Trochaic measure forms the basis of each group, the first note accent and long, but less so the fifth. Now, <laughs> that's coming from the master, right? This is how you play this etude. Yeah, I, I don't expect that to mean much to the majority of us, but <laughs> it's such a lovely snapshot of the way Beethoven genuinely studied the mechanics and techniques of Kramer's works. Mm -hmm. He was yeah. very thoughtful about it. Yeah. So now that we have all this background information on Kramer, let's bring that back to Austin. So Austin did not personally own works by Kramer based on her music notebooks that are preserved at Chawton. Instead, Catherine Shanks-Libben in her work, Music, Character, and Social Standing in Jane Austen's Emma, writes, Austen's notebooks contain mostly light keyboard pieces and many vocal works. However, Libben continues and tells us that Austen's cousin and sister-in-law, Eliza Hancock Austen, owned volumes of music that included Kramer, and it's likely that Jane Austen knew these. At the very least, Austen knew Kramer's works by reputation enough to include them in this scene, along with the wildly popular Irish melodies from Thomas More. This shows a range between the technical and the popular in the music Frank gives to Jane with her brand new Broadwood piano. So when Frank mentions Kramer in this scene, he describes it as something quite new to me. This doesn't necessarily mean that this music had to be fresh off the press, but since Emma was published in 1815, Frank is likely not referring to Kramer's original set of etudes, which have been published for over a decade at that point. He might instead be referring to the second set of etudes published in 1810 or a set of Kramer sonatas which were published in 1811. But regardless of which works by Kramer Frank is referring to, Libin writes, quote, It would not be an exaggeration to say that all serious pianists, such as Jane Fairfax, would have studied Kramer's etudes. Austin would probably have chosen Kramer for Jane Fairfax because his music was both fashionable and serious, a worthy choice for an accomplished woman pianist. We get the sense that Jane is not just capable of drawing room entertainment like the Irish melodies, but that she is also really technically skilled. It also tells us that even though Frank is acting out here, <laughs> yeah, he's not really being the best in this moment with all the talk of Irish melodies and all the innuendo. And he's really kind of playing both sides with Jane and Emma. He does know Jane well enough to pay attention to her skills and preferences in music. He's willing to acknowledge and encourage her technical abilities, which is really quite thoughtful. Again, 
there's a lot going on in the scene. It's so, so much. You really have to listen to the Irish Melodies episode first. But the gift of the Kramer music is, it is actually a very thoughtful gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really, really showing that he knows what she's capable of and encouraging that kind of technical development. So I think that gives us a lot of really lovely context for this scene in the novel. But before we wrap up, we have a couple of questions for Dr. Carolee Hunter, the wonderful pianist who recorded our new intro and outro music. So now on to our interview with Dr. Carolee Hunter. We're really excited today to have Dr. Carolee Hunter talking to us about Kramer, owner and founder of Hammer and Strings Conservatory. Dr. Carolee Hunter is an award-winning performer and pedagogue based in Phoenix, Arizona. Her reputation as a dynamic, sensitive, and passionate performer has led to solo and chamber performances across the country and internationally. These include a solo performance at Carnegie Hall, a performance of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with the Symphony of the Southwest and the West Valley Symphony, and performing Saint-Saëns Piano Concerto No. 2 with the Italian orchestra Isolisti de Perugia. She is also currently teaching at this year's Interharmony International Music Festival in Aquiterme, Italy. Dr. Hunter is a founding artist of the chamber group Solinier, whom we have previously featured on this podcast, in our episode on Irish Melodies, with Carolee's arrangement of Thomas More's Tis the Last Rose of Summer. And Kara Lee also kindly performed the new intro and outro music for our podcast, very exciting, which is Johann Baptiste Kramer's Etude Number 21, which we cannot thank her enough for. And last but not least, this phenomenal artist is also my sister. Just a small note there. Small thing that I want everyone to know. <laughs> I know this human being personally. So welcome, Carolee. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. It's always so fun to, for me to talk about my nerdy musical background. We love it. That's why you're here. So let's start with the etude, which really went through a significant evolution in the early part of the 19th century. I'm particularly thinking of this starting point with Kramer up to Friedrich Chopin and his very famous etudes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the piano etude in general? What is it? How did it evolve in the early 19th century? And why is it such an important genre? So etudes are, were, were definitely nothing new at this point when Kramer came around. Um, and up to this point, they had kind of been really considered student pieces. They were short. They didn't have interesting title like character pieces. Most of the time they weren't called like the butterfly or anything like that. They were literally just called studies. And most of the time, these amazing composers were actually just writing them for their students. You know, it wasn't even like, oh, I need this creative outlet. It was very practical. They had very practical uses. And at this point in history, the, you know, the piano itself is also relatively young. It's gone through significant changes in the last hundred years. And so a lot of those things are playing a, playing a part in what's happening with these studies or these etudes that are being written. So Kramer was really heavily influenced by the people around him and the people that came before him. And, you know, Clementi was one of his 
teachers, right? Mm-hmm. So these right. Were, he was taking lessons from Clementi and Clementi was actually one of the very first composers to write idiomatically for the piano. And it was something that was really starting to become in vogue, you know, like the, the cool thing to do. And so what that is, is they're writing music that can only specifically be done on the instrument in front of them. Mm, okay. Violins are capable of certain technical things because of where the strings cross and because they have the length of bow that they have. Keyboards are capable of specific things because of the way the notes are laid out and the physiology of the hand. And so different things like that. And so it, it, it became a lot more almost personal to the instrument. Gotcha. As opposed to, oh, I just hear this lovely melody in my head. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to make this work. And so, especially as the piano or pianoforte or, you know, anything that these composers are using, as they continue to change, but also they start to stabilize a little bit, this idea of writing idiomatically for the instrument became even more and more important. And so Kramer's kind of like right in this middle middle area, you know, Clementi, his teacher, who's really starting this movement. And then we get to Chopin, who really just like blew up the movement, really understanding what the keyboard can do and what we physiologically can do as as pianists. And so Kramer's in the, like I said, he's in this in the middle. He's in this really interesting spot. So he's trying to do things that are, first of all, he's upping the technical level of etudes from before. So now you're not writing these for your like beginning intermediate students. These are starting to become more of like, oh, you want to take this to the next level, right? These are not things that your little beginner students are going to be playing. He's continuing this idea of idiomatic writing. And so we have pieces that are really fast and yet really twinkly and light and legato. And so it it's really interesting. So, so how do we get kind of from from Kramer and his kind of like, ooh, I'm upping that game technically to then when, you know, like you mentioned with Chopin, where we're getting like his etudes, those are performance pieces. Those are showstoppers, right? I'm thinking particularly of like the, the revolutionary etude from 1831. Well, I, I think we go back to a little bit, like I said, with first of all, the, the piano is starting to stabilize. One of the things that happened is it became a lot more robust became capable of a lot bigger sounds and a lot a lot bigger fortes and pianos you know the dynamics are a lot the more dynamic range is much higher and so of course with that then you know the the capability of the type of music that you're producing changes like explodes yeah 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 and then also in this romantic era you know when you get to chopin this there's also this explosion of you know the ideas and the freedom of thought and the revolution and i love that you brought up the revolutionary etude because i mean that's a very very common theme in the romantic era and so they're feeling a little bit more free with feeling angry feeling passionate you know all of these things are starting to come out and then chopin building on the blocks of his predecessors starts to really revolutionize the way that we used our hand and that we understand the physiology. You guys can't see my hand. I'm, I'm holding it up for everyone. <laughs> understand more about physiology and medicine and things like that and how how our hand actually works. And so one of the things that he really, really worked and used in a new way was actually the thumb and starting to use the thumb as a turning point of different techniques that can allow your hand to do different things than it could before. In the Baroque era, anytime there was fingering put down, it was a lot of there was a lot of 
using the entire hand, like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever played the piano before, you understand how that can be problematic with getting from the five to the one. The flow gets interrupted the with flow. that jump. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Chopin was doing some really interesting things. And that's one of the one of the biggest revolutions of Chopin's etudes is his use of fingering. And he was doing things that people hadn't seen before. And yet at these very high tempos and very big and fast passages, all of a sudden those things were actually playable instead of, you know, having to have time for a gap or time for a shift or things like that. I mean, shout out to opposable thumbs is really what I'm learning from this. (laughs) Amen. Yes. Right. And it's and it's interesting too, like you said, where where Chopin is is making this again, they're showcase pieces. This is no longer um, because Kramer is, like you said, you know, with the with the etude, it starts out as more of just like this is for students. This is a technical piece that you use mostly as practice or warm up for a more performative piece. Whereas Chopin kind of changes that game as well. Yeah, and with with the changes to the piano being a more robust instrument, then all of a sudden. The piano is a viable concert hall instrument. Early pianofortes, really, um, I mean, I've had a chance to play a, a legitimate early period instrument before, and it's it's shocking how little sound comes out of those instruments. They weren't even used in orchestras because it wasn't, it would have been pointless. They continued to use the harpsichord in orchestras way past the development of the pianoforte because the harpsichord had that tone quality and, and sound projection that could be heard above an orchestra or with an orchestra. And early pianofortes, it wouldn't have had a chance. And so now Chopin and Liszt and some of these great romantic writers are are actually thinking about a concert hall where that wasn't really as much on the table. And concert halls themselves are being developed. And, you know, not only the aristocracy all of a sudden is privy to these performances. And, you know, it's just so much historical and and technological things happening that that make this all the perfect storm for Chopin. And I, and I love that it's so technical. I think that that's, again, you know, the, the etude starts as a technical innovation. It's, its whole purpose is to be like, let's perfect technique. But the fact that it's also having to evolve with the actual piano technology as well, I think that that's a really cool evolution to track. But, and, and the fact that you said that, you know, this the piano in the early 1800s is not capable of performance pieces. I think that really also, when we bring it back into Austin, makes sense why we're having, in Emma, for instance, where we're having them perform in a small room with a select gathering, because that's the only time that a piano makes sense as a performance piece is with that setting. Absolutely. In those intimate spaces, in those drawing rooms, in the salons. So, yeah. So with the concert halls, you know, now there's now there's all these people coming in to see you and you want to give the people a little bit of a show. <laughs> I mean, and like I said, the, the piano was leveling out a little bit, but even sometimes, you know, they'd have like a brand new Broadwood for a, a or other piano maker that's maybe has one or two changes that have never been seen before. And so now all of a sudden they want to make sure they can show that off. And so that's it's also interesting to think about that is that a lot of this time there's still just pianos aren't standard. There isn't a standard 88 keyboard instrument that's going to make this sound and going to be capable of this. And so it's it's just it's all in flux. It's so interesting. Well, I love that in, in, in Emma particularly, you know, we're talking about from Kramer to 
to Chopin and this developmental era. And it's technically, Emma is published in 1815. It's smack dab in the middle of all these developments. So Austin is kind of showing that she's aware that there's new stuff happening. And I think that's a really exciting nuance to bring to this particular scene. It is. And like I said, a lot of Kramer's pieces are really, they are kind of a little bit cutting edge. They're a little bit, they're more interesting to listen to. Cherney is one of the great, big, well-known etude makers. And he does have a few gems. And then he also has, excuse me, but he has some snoozers that are just, you know, like, and the students, when you give it to them, they might be, uh, it might have some great technical benefits and great pedagogical value, but it's not something they want to play for their friends, right? right? It's not like, <laughs> oh, so proud of this, you guys. Listen to me. Oh. It doesn't sound cool. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm judging this with my modern ears, but that was just something that I think Kramer has a little bit more spice to everything that he's doing at this point. He's, he's building, he's building. There's some really melodic and intrinsically beautiful writing happening there. Well, Carolee, you have very graciously recorded a Kramer etude for us. And this particular etude is from his first published collection. So one of the first of these groundbreaking studies for piano. Can you tell us a little bit about how you as a performer approach this piece and some of the technical elements or challenges and and how you address them. Sure. So it was fun to just listen to this piece a few times before I even, you know, dug into it and um, looked at the music and saw what I was getting into. And it's it's a delightful little piece. Um, one of the things that I love about it is, even though it's very, very fast, there's a lot of notes and they kind of never stop, but it, it has this melodic simplicity that I constantly get stuck in my head. And that's not always really possible with a tunes because either they're too fast or the melody just isn't that interesting. But this one is really delightful. It's charming. It's simple and yet not simplistic. And so that was one of the first things that I noticed about it. And so as I got my hands into it a little bit, I did start to notice that there was there it, it is quite idiomatic to the to keyboard playing. Like there wasn't anything truly difficult about it that I had to spend. A, a huge inordinate amount of time on to tackle this passage or anything like that, which you do find in the Chopin and Liszt etudes for sure. One of the fun things that does cause a little bit of struggle, which is perfect for an etude, is within these never-ending running 16th notes and, and passages, for a chunk of time, you'll have one particular pattern being done. And you can tell that, okay, you need to be able to master this pattern, this hand shape. And then that will end, and then the next section is a something completely different. New pattern, new motions, and while all of those things are fairly simple on their own, in their own little bubble, making all of those things gel together into one continuous flowing piece, that's where you get a little bit of the struggle, and that's where you have to spend a little bit of time, and it has to sound like that wasn't an issue at all. This was easy. This was not a problem. This was easy, yes. <laughs> It has to sound like you just tossed off this piece with so many notes and so much going on. Yeah, exactly. Like this was just a little ditty. You're welcome. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun to work on. And it's always fun to be reminded of the struggles that your students are going through and, and, and facing <laughs> and get knocked off your pedestal a little bit. It's a lot of fun. Did you feel a little bit like you were like, oh, yep, got to study that just a tiny bit more. Get that technique just right. Did you did you feel a little bit of that? Oh, yeah. And I mean... 
because also just like any performance, you know, you're on a bit of a you're on you're on a timeline. And so it's, you know, okay, I need to approach this very systematically so that I know that, you know, you have to try playing it through at the tempo you want. And you have to see where the train wrecks are happening. Yeah. <laughs> and almost always the train wrecks are at those junctures where you're changing. Those junctures, exactly. And so you have to take a lot of time to practice getting from one technique to the next fluidly and easily and mentally prepared and physically prepared. So, yeah. <laughs> and so with a piece like this, is the tempo something that is stated for you by the composer? Do you select the tempo? Yeah, that that's a great question because this was a little bit interesting to me. I mean, the composer gives ideas, right? And this is very common in this time period that they just say andante or allegro. And as always, that is all relative. And so you do, you have to find your own personal tempo where you can continue, you can feel like it, you're singing the melody and that you have control over the melody. And yet, it, again, it can't, it can't get stuck in the mud and it can't be so fast that it feels like, oh, whoa, that, what just happened here? So that is always, that's a little bit of an experiment that, take, that definitely takes some time. And uh, another thing that I think has been mentioned a little bit is, you know, um, some of the articulation and the way that you play the notes, because... Again, in this time period, there was still a little bit of expectation of the performer has, there's always some of this, but the, the performer has some actual choices to make. So if you listen to my recording and you go out and compare it to some of the you know actual professional released recordings um, on CDs and things like that that are out there, you would definitely notice some differences in some of the slurs and articulation. And I think that is what part of what makes this era of music really interesting is that there are a few things that are dictated by the composer and then the rest is kind of up to the performer themselves to make interesting. And just as you're making those decisions, you have to make sure that number one, it makes sense. Number two, that it has some type of continuity throughout the piece so that it doesn't just feel like, Why, what? <laughs> is, this, is this a new section? Right. <laughs> and then also that if you do that with continuity, that it also doesn't get boring. You have to make it interesting while you're doing all of these things. Yes. And so that's always really interesting in these early etudes and things like that, because it's probably going to sound a little bit different with every performer. And your hand and your technique are always going to be slightly individualized, too, just because that's the way. Oh, sure. And just, you know, my style of musicality as well. I personally know myself well enough to know that I, you know, I tend toward the lyrical and I have a lot of friends that are just, you know, like technical masterminds. And so they would approach this piece totally different. And it might be like almost twice as fast as mine. And them playing it that way might sound fantastic, where me trying to play it that way wouldn't sound sincere or, mm, okay. you know, it, it just wouldn't fit. And so, it, again, there's just a lot of that. Uh, yeah, your personal voice and what what fits with your your own personal narrative and your background and, and your ideals. Yeah. So much range in these tiny etudes. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, Carolee, thank you so much for both recording this piece for us. We just appreciate it so, so much. And for also taking the time to come on and talk to us a little bit about the wonder of etudes, <laughs> the magical world of etudes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I was really excited about the opportunity to record you guys' intro-outro music because that's, I mean, that doesn't come along super often. So that was just a really <laughs> fun thing for me to do. So I appreciate you asking. 
So, Carolee, where can our listeners find you online, learn more about you and your performances, all of that? Oh, sure. I do have a website. My, you know, my website person, <laughs> myself, does a horrible job keeping up on it. But you can find me at caroleehunter.com. Or you can see a little bit more about what I'm doing with my music conservatory in Gilbert, Arizona. And that's at www.hammerandstrings.com. And that's really where I've been putting a lot of my focus lately is on, you know, the pedagogy of the instrument and, and teaching and trying to really build something for, for young students to have these types of opportunities. So those are kind of the best places to keep up with me. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you again to Dr. Kara Lee Hunter for not only coming on to speak with us about etudes, but for also performing our new intro and outro music. If you keep listening until the very end of the episode, we will actually put her entire recording in the podcast. So if you want to listen to the full piece as performed by her, you will have an opportunity to do that. We will also be posting the recording on our website. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about St. James Palace. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.